If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. Don't Hide the Scars, a weekly podcast focused on addiction and recovery. Created by the nonprofit Pain, parents and addicts in need, and founded by Flint Anderson. Matt Gann, I'm a course of aftermath addiction treatment and uh, a poet and just an all around great dude and recovery addict and speaker. Uh, thanks for joining uh, us on Don't Hide the Scars. Hey, I'm honored to be on, man. Always a pleasure having discussions with you on uh, anything recovery related. Matt, we kind of want to jump down a hole because, you know, Flint faces some interesting challenges uh, being in the recovery um, treatment game as well. Mm-hmm. Or whatever term we want to use, there's a lot of unethical practices that go on. And I know, you know, some of our discussions separate as we you faced it. And yeah, man, it's unfortunate when we're people that are really trying to help because uh, mm-hmm. we wouldn't, us three gentlemen wouldn't be talking right now without the help of others. Right. No, nah, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people only see that uh, this industry creates a lot of wealth and they get in it motivated by money. And when you're motivated by money and not helping people, you're already in, in it for the wrong reasons. So there's no right. telling what that type of path will lead you down when you're just about the dollar instead of trying to help somebody help them turn their life around, inspire them to get clean, try to put them in a position to succeed, which like, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of ethical people that get into this, this field and this industry for the right reasons. They want to help. But obviously it's going to bring some shady characters with the, uh, the type of money that's associated with it. Absolutely. Well, and I know one of the things that a big misconception, and even I had till I started working with Flint was you know, when it comes to the cost of running it, and sometimes mm-hmm. there's that pushback of people, you know, that it, it's like, well, I want to be there, but I got this type of insurance or wow, it yeah. costs this much, not realizing the the amount that the facility actually has to do. I mean, intake doctors, skilled trained yeah. professionals, 24 yeah. hour care, you know, food, food, yeah, food, food, insurances. I, I, I mean, yeah. uh, just in California, just payroll tax alone is uh, is enough to make you want to yeah. go screaming <laughs> into the night, you know. I mean, isn't Cali the worst state tax-wise in the country? It is. Oh, it's right enough. up there. I think it's New – is it you guys, then New York, or New York, then you guys? I mean, it's right up there. It might be us and then New York. I, I think, think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of times people don't, don't you know, they want you to, to, to kind of help people for free – or, you know, for, for, for less than without realizing that there's a lot of costs associated with, with running a facility and, and trying to offer the type of help that you need to for people. Exactly. You, you know, know and, a, and a lot of treatment centers, especially out here, they will no longer even take cash clients uh, yeah. be, because they're they're waiting for the, 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 the big policy. And there's enough people coming into treatment that, you know, yeah. some policies are going to pay forty two hundred dollars a day for detox. And you, you start, these guys start doing the math. And if your cash price is $30,000 for 30 days, um, they're not taking it mm-hmm. because they're getting more money off, off, off the insurance policy. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's just kind of, it's just kind of crazy all the way around. Yeah. I mean, it's even difficult talking to people about cash. I mean, $30,000 is nothing to sneeze at. Not a lot of people, at least out our way, have that laying around to send a loved one to rehab. So a lot of like our area is based off of the people that have insurance. Um, but it's difficult to try to accept everybody because the public, the public plans offer you pennies on the dollar to the point that you couldn't even run a staff with the reimbursement rates that right. the Medicaid products, which is mass health for, for us, um, you know, affords, you know, I mean, it's right. just, it's very difficult. Any way you look at it, um, just running a facility, the overhead, the cost associated with it, trying to give the best quality care, being competitive, hiring quality staff. Cause right. like you could just, you know, you could try to, what do you say? Like pay everybody under price just to fill the place up to try to maximize your profits, but you don't have any quality staff there. And what's, right. what's the type of recovery that you're really offering the person that is going through your program. And then I always look at it like, would you, send your loved one to your own program. Like, 
Do you stand by your brand? Do you stand by your your label that you would be fully fully on board with your daughter, your son, your your brother, your sister going through your program and be able to stand with the the quality of care that you offer? Right, right. And I can honestly say yes, and I'm sure you can say yes as well. Mm-hmm. You know, no, absolutely. It, it's uh, uh, no, it, it's you know when you're and, and then the other thing is is that because there is no cure for addiction. Yeah. You've, you've, you've got p- families in particular going, you know, especially if they relapse six weeks after they get out of your program or even mm-hmm. a year after you get out of the program, you know, you, you get, you get the phone call. Well, mm-hmm. I just wasted $30,000 and we have to explain, no, you didn't waste $30,000 or the insurance policy mm-hmm. because the, the seed of recovery has been planted, you mm-hmm. know, um, and, and, and families again, because they don't understand addiction they're, they're assuming that we're just going to, we're, we're just going to come in and, and fix the world, fix their, yeah. fix their kid. They don't know the amount of work that goes into recovery and what one has mm-hmm. to do to stay clean and sober. And not just the person that's trying to get into recovery, the family needs to heal as a unit. And if they're not getting the type of support or seeking like outside support groups, like we uh, up here in our area, Massachusetts on the East coast, there's a great organization called learn to cope. It's peer driven family members, um, loved ones. So like, as you know, your addict husband, wife, son, daughter is getting the help that they need. Uh, a lot of what we do is try to push people to to those type of support groups. So they're in rooms where it's like, you know, you're around people that know the pain that you're going through that have been broken or manipulated or all of that. And you can lean and have their own support network. Cause a lot of times, um, from what I've seen is a lot of the parents are sicker than, than their addicts. They're in like that desperation. I need to save my child mode and I'm willing to do any and everything to try to make sure that my baby's going to be okay. And sometimes, you know, when you squeeze something too tight, you know, they're going to rebel against that and want to be free. You know, treatment's not something that can be, you know, at least what I've seen, I've not seen forced treatment work at a good rate whatsoever. Right. You know, right, right, you need right. to be a little open minded to like, I want to get the help. I want to receive yep, the help, yep. you know, and a lot of that's like education and, and, and offering resources to the family. You right. Know? And we, it's very and we, difficult. I've seen people leave the field, like friends of mine that owned other centers that were like, it was just so draining to get the phone calls that it's my fault that, you know, six months after they had, they had relapsed and overdosed and, and it's my fault that I don't take this insurance or, right. or I can't do it uh, for free. And it's like, you know, they, a lot of times people get, get the finger pointed at them. Like we're, you know, we're not the ones that save your child. We try to equip them with the tools, put them in a position that they're going to succeed. And it's on them to actually succeed in this. Yeah. And that's like, what I try to, when I'm talking to families ahead of time, I try to set the president that I don't give any BS statistics of like, Oh, if your kid goes through right. aftermath, this is the success rate that we see. Cause it's ultimately is BS. Um, if your, if your son, daughter, if your husband, wife, if they put the effort in, they're going to get the return, but it's on them. You know, no, qu- no trying question. To teach that accountability, accountability piece and, and setting like, you know, setting the expectation right there. Like we can't do it for them. We can't do it for anybody. Right. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree with you more. We don't give that the success Mm -hmm. rates or anything like that because Mm -hmm. you you just, you just can't, it's bullshit, you know, Mm -hmm. but we've been doing that here at the pain organization. Cause I also, I have pain, which is the nonprofit. And then of course I have the for, for profit treatment center. And here we've been doing family support work for the last 12, 13 years. Uh, in fact, we have our, our, our meeting tonight, every Wednesday nice. night, two hours, you know, that these families, we've seen over 7,000 families stroll through these mm-hmm. doors, you know, in the last 12 years. Um, and, and, but here's what's interesting. We do have a lot of people that have continued to come for five years, six years, yeah, seven yeah. years, whether their kid is clean and sober or not. Mm-hmm. But the majority of these people, they're, they're always gung ho at the beginning. You know, yeah. they, they march through the doors, man, they're fired up. They're going to, you know, and, and then all of a sudden their kid gets out of treatment. Now they may show up twice a month. Now, maybe once a month, then their kid has a relapse and they oops, come right back. They come right back or yeah. not because they're not, now they're yeah. embarrassed because they yeah. didn't, you know, follow through with it. Now it's, it's, it's just a vicious cycle sometimes. Yeah. 
Well, and that's, I, I think you brought up the perfect word, accountability. And mm-hmm. that's the, the process of becoming, especially when we choose it, like, like, and you've told me, Flint, like you just mm-hmm. brought up, Matt, when it's forced upon so many people just reject yeah. it. Very few does it yeah. take. But when, when it's the individual's desire to do so and they take accountability, it's a completely different picture yeah. altogether. Right. Right. So I'll tell you a little story. So in Massachusetts, they have Section 35 where you get forced into like 30 day treatment or oh, whatever. Really? And uh, I think I was I might have been 19 years old at the time. And I get sent to this place. that got 30 foot fences, prison wire, oh, it's like right at the foot of a, a state prison. And this is how, how great it worked is uh, I ended up in the hole for the last five days there. I get out. At court, I have somebody meet me at the courthouse with a filled syringe. I go across the street to the Kmart, across from Somerville District Court, try to get high in the bathroom, and I end up getting into a fist fight with loss prevention and a superhero shopper, and I get dragged out of the bathroom, put in handcuffs, and I get sent up to county within like an hour and a half. Of and then I'm in jail, just like, what the, you know, what just happened? I didn't even last a couple hours on the street. It was miserable. Right. Uh, like I wanted no part of being there. I wanted I had no intention. You know, I get like some parents will do it so they can sleep at night because yeah. like, you know, it's scary out there right now. Like right before we, you know, we had a little discussion about fentanyl and how bad it is. I mean, it you know, we are losing a generation at such a rapid pace. It's disgusting with the, right. with the, the type of drugs that are on the streets right now that sometimes just for, for a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife to sleep at night, you know, sometimes that's what they need to do, regardless of the results of somebody who's like trapped in the sickness, you know? New Perceptions North, the premier drug and alcohol treatment and recovery center in Central California. A full continuum of medically supervised top quality care with programs for detox, inpatient residential treatment with dual diagnosis, intensive outpatient treatment, sober living, support groups, and more. With 50 plus years of combined experience and sobriety, Flint Anderson and Thelma Gatlin Wilson provide adult men and women with the highest caliber of professional health care, treating each client with compassion and respect, in a safe, comfortable environment to begin the process of recovery to proudly create and sustain a life without addiction, call 559-978-1507 or visit newperceptionsnorth.com. Matt, are you seeing, because what we're seeing out here is uh, we're a distributor of Narcan. Mm-hmm. And for, for a lot of years prior to the fentanyl uh, epidemic, I was not, and, I, and I'll be the first one to admit it, I was not a fan of Narcan being sold to the general public. And in, in, in fact, I was at the- Why not? And I'm, I'm going to tell you why. I was, okay. at the, I was at the National Drug Conference in Atlanta about, I don't know, eight years ago, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a group of mothers there from the Boston area. And, okay. and there was, a, there was a, a breakout session on that, on Narcan, mm-hmm. kept with first responders, being sold to the general public. And this, this one mother, and I was extremely respectful to these, to these women, but I stood up and I said, ma'am, I said, you know, how old's your son? 20, 26. Uh, does he live at home? Yes. Uh, do you pay for his cell phone and all his electronics? Yes. Do you pay for his food? Yes. Do you pay for his car? Yes. Insurance. Well, you know, the list just goes yeah. on and on and on. Right. And I looked at her and I said, uh, oh, and you allow him to use heroin in your house and you have you know, two other small children there. I said, mm-hmm. can I move in? Mm-hmm. I said, because now you want Narcan to be able to keep your little boy alive, which I understand that. All mm-hmm. right. I said, but why would he ever want to get clean? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so as, as time progressed, now my tune has changed yeah. because, because of the fentanyl crisis. And it is an absolute must that I believe that every household should have Narcan, mm-hmm. like an EpiPen or a fire extinguisher or anything else. But what we're seeing out here now, according to my my connections, uh, and we're a distributor of Narcan, that drug dealers are giving Narcan to their clients with the with the fentanyl M30 pills or whatever they're they're mm-hmm. selling them. So these drug dealers are actually starting up uh, nonprofits so they can get the Narcan for free. Uh, this is at least in California. 
or and or they are sending their people into organizations like ours to get the one box, the two boxes that we hand out for free. So now we have to take everybody's driver's license. We've got to get, yeah. get all their information. But that's but now that's where that is going. What do you think about that? Nonsense. I mean, I'm pretty shocked to hear something like that. I don't yeah. picture that happening around here. I don't know what the drug laws are out West that if you provide somebody with a drug and they overdose and die, they can get charged with murder. I don't know okay. if that might be one of the reasons that they're trying to do it to avoid something like that, that they're providing well, here's, some sort of safety. Well, here's but to me, deal. that sounds like a stretch. No drug dealer that I ever caught dope off of would care whether I live to die to, well, to be well, like, hey, let me well, go purchase Narcan or go through all those different hoops to try to give you Narcan with a bag of dope. It just doesn't, that you know. Out here, really it, it's, it's happening because this is coming right from the horse's mouth. This is coming right mm -hmm. from DEA. But 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 here's here's the deal. So no, prior to a law that just passed, we could not charge a drug dealer with murder or mm -hmm. even involuntary manslaughter. manslaughter or something like that. Correct. But now mm -hmm. what we have done, I've been part of the program with some assemblymen out here in our district attorney, is that the, the, the law is now changing and they are ca calling it a poisoning. So when a drug dealer gets arrested, they it's, it's a slap on the wrist again, but they have to sign a piece of paper that simply says that I am aware that fentanyl can and will kill somebody. And mm. if it I get arrested again, then I can be charged with involuntary manslaughter. That goes into their jacket, goes into their file. Yeah. So now the, 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 the legal system knows that these guys have signed it and are aware of it. But here's the question that I have. If a drug dealer is giving Narcan, to a client, knowing that this is a poisoning. Now they really know it's a poisoning because they're trying to br bring their client back. Does that make sense? It's really hard for me to try to put this together. Uh, Isn't it? Know, I get, yeah. I get, we, you know, you're trying, you know, you're really trying to sell the idea. Uh, I mean, I don't, it's really difficult to buy that they would go through all those steps when yeah. they're just trying to make money and serve whoever their clientele is. And the reality is, is when one drops, two more pop up. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? Progressing oh, yeah. through that. And I think that even before fentanyl really hit the streets at the capacity that it is, people knew that that heroin was bad, that that Oxycontin was bad. Sure. I don't think, you know, I really don't. I don't know. I, I just, I'm shocked. I've never heard drug dealers hitting out knocking. It's kind of well, a strange and, concept to me. Well, and here's, and, and here's why this, this came about. We have, we have an organization out here called Fort, all right, mm -hmm. which is a fentanyl response team. Mm -hmm. And they were getting on an average four to seven calls per week on overdoses. Mm -hmm. Well, for about the last two months, that's dropped to one to two. Mm -hmm. So these guys did some investigations with some of the people that they've gone out with. And these are mm -hmm. what the clientele are telling those guys is that yeah, they I mean, actually got I, the I can Narcan see it at a trap room. house where people are getting high to have Narcan there just in case somebody goes out sure. because nobody wants somebody dying. Well, you know, where you're trying to have a legal activity at, you're trying to hustle, you're trying to make money, trying to sell, whatever, that right. they don't want to have to remove a body from the area. So maybe having it there. But I mean, in reality, knocking is there just to try to offer somebody some help. And yep. if somebody is that conscientious of the drug that they're giving out, I mean, you know, we're going to get high. It doesn't matter whether I go through your dealers in California that are offering Narcan or the, the people that that are out this way that could care less and don't give it to me. I'm going to get high when I'm actively right. using and I'm caught in the grips. And, you know, it might not be a bad thing because whether they're selling pills, whether they're selling bags of fentanyl, I mean, it's a deadly, yeah. deadly drug. And having access to Narcan just gives you another chance and another shot at, at living. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. I'm sure they, that everybody has their own perspective on it. And, you know, I'm not here to try to, I'm just giving you my opinion and, sure. and you know, getting this information and my first thoughts on it. 
Right. Um, you know, if somebody has access to Narcan, it's getting high out there and it, it, it helps them, you know, make it through that overdose that sees the light to get into yep. your detox or another detox. Like, I mean, that's all it really is. It's not like something, you know, you're not doing Narcan every day to live. Right. Yeah. It's not right. like a maintenance program that's going to help you survive. It's there for at, at the worst of the worst times when you're using to try to give you that chance. Right. And that's all yep. we can ask for, because if I wasn't given a chance, I'm not sitting here with you guys. Right. You Same here. I mean, like right. if I didn't get the, the bed at the detox I was at, if if I called 10 minutes late and that bed was taken, who knows if I'm still on the same trajectory of life. Right. You know, so. Yeah. It's definitely a strange concept, but, <laughs> you know, I remember when I was first, like when I was first doing advocacy work and uh, hitting the streets and uh, I was at the Cambridge Needle Exchange, right? At, it's a city right outside of Boston. And um, at the Needle Exchange, they were talking about how now Cambridge is a pretty big city and they refused to carry Narcan, right? Mm-hmm. The police department was like refusing it. And this was right when fentanyl was like first hitting our area. It was about 2014. And um, I remember talking with the harm reduction people saying it's going to take like an officer's son to overdose and have other police officers show up and say, hey, this isn't in my union contract. I'm not I'm not doing that. I'm not carrying Narcan. I'm not, you know, whatever. And it took a situation like that for the whole city that ended up within a year. They all were carrying Narcan because an officer's kid died. Sure. It always comes down to that. Yeah. With with anything in the drug world now, it always comes down to whether it's an officer's child that that dies Mm -hmm. or or, or politician or or some head medical director somewhere. Mm -hmm. I I mean, that's normally what it takes in order for stuff to change. We're post-reactionary as is. Oh, absolutely. You bet. Mm -hmm. You bet. You know. We you, people like you two gentlemen could sit and tell them until you're blue in the oh, face. And then I have. all of a sudden they don't like, listen to us until some extreme. And then they're like, hey, I'm ready to do everything. Like, oh, <laughs> right. we've only been telling you for the last decade you need to do exactly. More. Exactly. Yeah. You know? right? Especially with the politicians. Oh, oh politicians. I, I hate politicians. Red, <laughs> white, blue, left, right. Who cares? They don't do a thing for us. Nope. You know, they turn a blind in a blind eye to like the people that are struggling out there and the changes that are needed for the community is just, you know, they move like molasses. It's disgusting. Yeah. i tell you what we, we do have, we do have a couple out here though. We have Jim Patterson, who's, who's our assemblyman, who's just wonderful at this, you know? No, there's definitely some, there's no matter what, there's going to be some good ones that are really into this fight. But what I've seen in our area is a lot of politicians will bank on running saying we're going to combat the opioid crisis. And that's like their whole political campaign. And we had some, we had the governor of Massachusetts run on that. And then the first thing he did when he stepped foot in office is cut substance abuse funding. Correct. Like the very first act after we used to see his commercials all over opioid epidemic. We're here to combat it mother mothers that led mother groups uh speaking for him and then literally when he got into office he cut substance abuse funding yeah like, oh, because thanks. they because they need a platform to run on every exactly. time exactly right so so they really don't want this stuff to go away because it's a platform for the next time they run for office mm-hmm. sure. you know it's just, it's the same revolving revolving door in, in every city across america today no it's bad uh, what are you facing with uh, one of the big challenges, of course, is, is you know, Flynn will bring up with the, the insurance kind of running out or the lot that they'll put on it, you know, that there's this wonderful misconception Flint and I have talked about different movies that have touched on a, a addiction. And I, I love the movie Clean and Sober with Michael Keaton. I think it's one of the best ones because he gets out and shit is still not perfect. And it illustrates, yes. but, but we get these magical ones and I get mm-hmm. that they were doing good, but like 28 days, like. Mm. Sorry, 28 days just that isn't it. enough. So what are you guys doing at Aftermath with, with the aftercare to really keep people engaged, the addict engaged in the program? I mean, one of the things that we do is we try to engage them in the community. Um, we're mm. really like, uh, though we're a private treatment center, we're really like engaged in the recovery community as a staff, uh, recovery events. We really try to get people connected and support. So when they get out, they're not alone. They're not you know, trapped in that 28 day locked unit. And and then they, they get out and everything is like still there, all the wreckage, all the shame, all the guilt. Well, now what am I supposed to do? You are in your safe little bubble um, where our level of care is more of integrating back into society. 
Um, And the way we do it um, from what I used to do at at another spot, it's, it's a little more of like a stepping stone more so than like a safe, a safe little bubble, I would say. And uh, we have like a bunch of recovery centers around um, our area that like you can go in. There's meetings every night of the week. There's game nights on Friday. It's like a social um, place. Uh, One of my best friends, Carrie Ann Cacavaro runs it. She's like an amazing woman in recovery has like, I think eight or nine years. Um, But we really try to get people connected and and there's a wide range of people that we treat. Um, And even with the opioid epidemic, like we're, dealing with a lot of alcoholic uh alcoholics yeah. like more yeah, alcoholics lately than than anything especially coming out of the pandemic where you had two years yeah. of forced isolation and like you don't have the the entertainment the release the, the the being able to leave your house your work and your wife was there kids running around doing homeschooling getting stressed out you know we've seen like a lot of people that were drinking during their zoom calls every day started with a glass of wine now, all of a sudden, they can't wake up without having one because they're getting the shakes. So, Damn. you know, trying to find like specific meetings that fit like age ranges and 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 substances. Um, I feel like connection is the biggest piece of this. And when you can get somebody to connect and you can inspire them a little bit to like open up and not like sit in the shell scared to talk and, and express themselves, you get like a lot better results in that capacity. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're seeing a lot of alcohol as well. I, I, I don't know, you know, and again, I agree with you coming out of the pandemic. That was a, that was an enormous blow mm-hmm. to a lot of people in recovery, mm-hmm. you know, and we're seeing for, for whatever reasons, we're seeing a lot of women yeah. right yeah. now as well, you know, I can uh, agree. which, which we haven't seen. I mean, we've had our fair share of, of, of women clients, but not to the extent that we have them now. I think uh, just your take is, is, and I saw a lot with, with women, it was, you know, the, 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 the evening wine club kind of thing. And, and, it, and it had, a di- it started to within women have a different kind of socialization, you know, men, we had the 19th hole and, sure. you know, these, <laughs> yeah, these yeah. other things or ah, the men's club meeting or what. And, it, and so it, it became kind of a culture thing for women. And I've had a few friends that are, were, are professionals and they said that was kind of the thing that the wine mm-hmm. wine started a little bit earlier each and every yeah, day. Every day, yep. And uh, you know, then it went on to other things. And, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Most of the time out here it was like a three to one ratio of guys to girls. Right. Like there'd be three times more guys in a program than there were women. There's three times more men's programs than there are women. And lately it's been like, you know, pretty even split from what I've been seeing. You know, yeah, exactly. and it can't, like it's tough. There's a lot of like shame and guilt that's associated with it. And then it's hard. You know, alcohol is, is the one drug you have to explain why you don't do. You know, you right. go to these little suburban parties and, and you're trying your best not to drink while your kids are running around. You have to give an explanation why you don't where right. no one's ever going to question why I don't shoot heroin anymore. <laughs> like, What's up with you? Oh, I shot heroin. And now, like, I don't. So you can't do anything that you like to enjoy. They're not going to debate question. They're just going to move on awkwardly yeah, from that yeah. conversation. <laughs> where like You are exactly right, man. You are exactly where right. You have to, and, then, and then you look at it, you know, you're drinking every day. That's your relief. And that's like what you do to like, I mean, just the, the fear that was associated with the last two years. I mean, the media was just constant COVID, ICU, breathing machine, death. And everybody was going to die from it, right? Just beat into our heads. I mean, there was just like a very scary, um, you know, perspective out there that like, what do we do when we're, you know, dealing with anxiety, stress and depression? We drink, we do drugs. We cover up whatever the feelings and emotions that we're going through with the substances that we're familiar with. And in Massachusetts, everything was locked down, but you know, liquor stores weren't. You want to know why? Because if they locked down those liquor stores, the emergency room would be overrun with people withdrawing from alcohol. So liquor stores had to be an essential business when the state of Massachusetts was on complete lockdown. Mm -hmm. So you could still go and get alcohol. (laughs) And that, you know, there's advertisements on every corner. There's a half naked girl with a Bud Light bottle saying, hey, if you drink this, I'll be on a beach with you. Right. None of that for heroin. None of that for, you know, a lot of the other substances. So 
you know, it's a little easier for, for, for people like me to not be able to shoot heroin compared to some of these, you know, the wine club moms and the guys that go out and get wasted golfing and all that good stuff. So, but we've seen like a real large surge and and we're probably 60% alcoholics right now. 60, 65, I would say. Yeah. Makes makes sense. How did you during the pandemic, not only continue to be an advocate and leader in recovery, Mm -hmm. but work and maintain your, I mean, you're, you're a dad, you're, you know, mm -hmm. you've got all these things on your shoulders, like so many other people. I mean, I'm, I'm blessed that for the most part, outside of like a little period of time uh, through the pandemic, I was still working. I was still able to leave my house because we were a medical facility and we were labeled essential. And the fact is, is opioids have been killing people long before COVID mysteriously surfaced. So I'm going to put up with whatever the consequences are catching that virus. If it's going to help somebody like save their life and not feel alone and isolated. And when a lot of like meetings went to zoom, um, we started like a men's meeting that met in person, like screw the consequences. Like we need this. And if they ever come up, like we're going to die one way or another from COVID or from shooting heroin or fentanyl <laughs> right now that if you see us in a circle by the lake or a little closer than, you know, social distancing, you know, suggestions require the fact is, is like we need each other at, at difficult times. And when forced isolation, you know, like there, there was a lot of people that I know that had multiple years in recovery that fell off absolutely because they got disconnected from meetings. They didn't have their support. They didn't feel confident enough to like express themselves and like this to catch your real emotions when I'm sitting like I, we can talk and I'm not saying anything about the podcast. What I mean is during the Zoom meetings, it's not as intimate as like, you know, hey, Johnny, what's been going on? You, you're with them and you feel like, yo, something's wrong. Sure. You know, let's get honest. What's going on? Like, let's try to get deeper, you know, deeper than what you're trying to express. So I always believe like in person, it's such a better support than all the meetings that went to zoom and I'm sure that they helped some people too, but like how easy is it to be like, Oh, I'm not hopping on the computer today or right. I'm right. not picking up the phone or, you know, it, 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 it definitely removed a lot more of the accountability piece. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, it did. Yeah, absolutely. Hey Matt, I want to ask you what uh, out there, is there a lot of competition between uh, treatment facilities? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, over the last, couple years i mean places have been popping up left and right um it's like a a california or a south florida right now compared to the first facility i opened was in 2016 Mm. and there was only three of us Mm. and now there's like 13 and a 45 minute ride from beverly mass to framingham and more coming in that small section of of strip of a strip of highway or whatever so but a lot of us like are in the recovery community have known each other for a long time. So it's not as, um, as cutthroat, I would say as some of the other areas in the country with some of the tactics, we don't see as much unethical. Uh, there's some definitely some questionable behavior, but not as unethical as like, I originally got into treatment working in Florida. So I heard all the nightmares of the different things that were going down there of, of body brokering of, you know, the Kenny, uh, whatchamacallit chapters that guy that was like you know he was a guy in south florida that had a program was billing urines billing treatment giving them drugs right like some really really disgusting things you don't really see that stuff up here or at least it hasn't happened yet right so but it is a very very competitive area in that sense have you ever seen the movie Body Brokers? Yep, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, we did a we did a podcast with John Schwab, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, just just a great movie. I mean, it yeah, really, no that, yeah, yeah it's, really set the your stomach makes your stomach turn. It it did it did. I you literally know? got sick to my stomach watching mm-hmm. that thing because because I uh, I'm watching that thing and I'm thinking, my God, I I know these people, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's just disgusting. Absolutely. Well, that's like for me, um, I've like 
the area that I'm in is the only real area that I really get the clients to come in here to get treatment. I don't fly people in. I don't try to go right. outside right. Of, of the little, I don't know, I would say a four mile radius is where most of the people that come to treatment with us come from. Right. Um, over the years of working in treatment and going to the different conferences and seeing yep. the way people talk about it. You know, what they do for a living and how it's described can be really disgusting to me yeah. where like I try to base what I do off of the success of people, you know, Correct. people that 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 take the approach because we have like a, a little there's, there's evidence based treatment. Obviously, we have to do it. There's guidelines for insurance companies, but we also like I love people up. And uh, I was at a corporate place before that used to not understand the power and impact of telling somebody you love them, giving them a hug and telling them that, that you believe in them. Yep. And it would frustrate them because it's not something tangible. It's not something that you can bottle up in a graph and, and, and put into somebody's treatment plan. But when you see people that celebrate six years, five years, four years, three years that went through that program, you know, sometimes loving somebody up, treating them like a human being, having access to like, you know, we try to all be in the trenches with them. You know, right, there, right. there's not really, um, oh, this is just your therapist. You can't talk to somebody else. You know, exactly. sometimes you relate to, you know, for, for who we have now, Rob G is a very spiritual guy. If you're like a religious, spiritual person, you might connect with him. But on one day you want to talk about something deeper and, and we have Hillary that can get real deep. You know, uh, you want personal experience. I mean, I, I, I love the conversations that I have with older gentlemen that are very successful and alcoholics and we come from two different backgrounds two different you know I, I grew up I was homeless at 16 got into drugs really young I was a monkey that sold bananas um, and you got some guy making you know a vice president corporate salary and I'm giving him advice and, and talking about feelings emotions and how you find the different outlets in the toolkit you know what right. I mean like we try to really you know just love people up. So, yeah, I want to talk about that because uh, mm -hmm. you and finding purpose in your voice is such yeah. an important thing for yeah. people to do. Flynn, I'll have to share with you some of, of Matt's poetry and, mm -hmm. and some of the spoken word stuff you, yep. you do. How do you take and translate that with people that you work with and, may, and maybe helping them find their thing because it gave you so much oh, purpose yeah. and yeah. and i love following matt on social media because i see pictures yeah. with his kids and yep. all the work he's doing and how, how do you translate that to people i mean there's various ways that you can translate it so um one thing i always try to do is push people to do to do better um i think a lot of times that that we're drilled into our heads that we have to be grateful for where we're at and not kind of kind of stay in the moment um, where I always try to push people to succeed. I want to see people win. I want to see people do well. And, um, I want people to be inspired and love what they do. Like I get to wake up every day with a purpose where I haven't felt like I've worked in probably seven, eight years at this point, right. you know, like it's not even, not even a thought I get to do what I love. I get to be around, you know, from, from people in recovery, people that are broken. And I get to try to, 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 to help build them up. You know, and like, I'm sure with you and your program, like we have people that go through our program and we hire them. It was the yeah, same at the last absolutely. place. You know, we just had a guy, John T celebrate a year that, that we brought him on a um, few hours a week. He's an older gentleman, doesn't even need the money. He just loves being around the guys and like giving that positive influence. Sure. And he feels a purpose like, hey, this is something I've taken from the world for so long. So I want to give something back. Yeah. You know. But I, I really just try to try to push people to follow their heart, make sure that they're happy, you know, because a lot of times we get trapped in jobs that we hate, um, you know, the golden cage trapped to a good paying salary, but we're miserable at our job. And uh, happiness is like key and make sure that, you're, you know, you're taking care of yourself and and trying to find that drive and stay inspired, you know, and don't don't try to quit. I mean, I'm you know, it's it's different for everybody trying to tap into their purpose. And then I try to lead by example. You know, I am not somebody that like I'm at every recovery event I possibly can be at. We compete. We do like a, a ton of sporting recovery fundraisers, kickball tournaments. We just won a 32 team wiffle ball tournament um, that we were there from nine in the morning till five 30 at night. 
um, playing wiffle ball <laughs> with a bunch of recovery. You know, all the teams are in recovery, recovery resources. You, you know, it's like, I don't know. I try to take the action and hopefully people follow and I try to do right by people and, and the good will come back. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know. Well, I think that's one of the amazing things that you you brought up and pointed out, like, through, for instance, a CEO guy and, and you mm-hmm. know, Matt, your story, like you said, 16, mm-hmm. you know, the monkey selling yeah. the banana. I mean, it, it, Matt's story is deep, folks. It's uh, it's one of those that after, after I learned from our conversation, I was like, man, mm-hmm. I need to cry. I'm just glad this dude's alive because <laughs> it's like, it's like shit, you yeah. know, uh, not to compare addiction stories because, hey, we're all just glad we're yeah. sober. But it, it, it really is amazing how in recovery we can bring so many different types of yeah. people into the same room. That, that might have just not even uh, spit on each other if we were on fire. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. But we have that connection. You know, yeah. we have there's that, a connection. something that we can relate to, yeah. you know, without having it be the substances or even the experiences. We still can relate to that, that void, that the pain that we all felt when we were out there, the hopelessness. Yeah. You know? Now, as a parent, got to ask, we are parents and addicts in need. Yeah. How, how are you communicating with the kids? I, I mean, uh, your oldest is 14. 14? Yeah. 14. Okay. Whoa. Yeah. So I you got this. a lot coming your way, my friend. Oh, yeah. I know. I know. So my son, my daughter, I've started talking about the people she hangs out with. You are who you hang around with. That was something I used, my parents, my mother used to say to me, oh, that kid's a bad kid. And I would lie through my teeth saying he was the best kid, but she was always <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, she isn't there yet. She's nine. She has a lot of like, I'm, I am scared because she's me reincarnated. She's a troublemaker. <laughs> she's, you know, angry. She's emotional. She has outbursts, you know, just the behaviors right now are something I'm a little worried about, but, um, I haven't been as upfront with her to this point as I have been with my son. My son is, um, to get to where I'm at, it took a lot of sacrifice over the years. Right. And also who had to sacrifice is my son. Sure. Um, he used to have to come to events, uh, whether it was poetry, recovery, I would be speaking, I'd be performing, and he would be there in the crowd. I'd always make the crowd clap for him because it embarrassed him and he'd get all mad and pissy at me. <laughs> you know. But that's I still do it to this day. But I've been very open with him. I've, uh, you know, He's known I've been a drug addict probably since he was seven, eight years old. Um, I was on this kick to try to stop drinking Red Bulls and well, not Red Bulls. It's, uh, Celsius is now, but energy drinks, right? I'm like an energy drink. I drank a couple a day. I had like three weeks of sobriety from Celsius <laughs> and I don't realize I say some dumb shit from time to time. And I, I was talking to my friend Jenna, who was over saying that I relapsed and I drank a Celsius and my God, did my son like get so heartbroken thinking like some, you know, the worst had happened because I've been so open with him. And I've, you know, he knows I was a heroin addict. He knows I went to jail and I was homeless and like how hard I've worked to get to this point to try to provide a life for him. But I'll tell you in that moment where he thought I relapsed, I was heartbroken with how his emotional reaction. Sure. Where I was just talking like, Hey, I tried stopping to drink energy drinks for three weeks and went right back to him. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm good. I didn't do anything like that, buddy. Nothing, nothing that you got to worry about, but. Well, you know, something, Matt, you, 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 look, I got two boys and Mm -hmm. they're, they're now, you know, 43 and 37. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And let me tell you something. I've got a great relationship with those Mm -hmm. guys today, but I'll tell you what it's uh, it took, it took a while. You know, and mm-hmm. especially in that in that first four to five years of my recovery, I remember mm-hmm. I remember one time my my older son uh, wasn't living with us. He obviously not, but he came home. I told you this story, yeah. you know, or mm-hmm. a Saturday morning he drops his laundry off for his mother to do, and uh, of course it's like, dude, you got your own washer and dryer <laughs> at your house. Why do you got to drop it off here? But um, I said, you know, I said, kid, I was pissy about something. I said, can you just pick that shit up off the floor so mom doesn't have to bend down and pick it up? And he looks at me and he goes, you know, did you use something today? 
Oh yeah. And I just yeah. went, my shoulders dropped and I just said, yeah. man, I go, is that what you really think? And he goes, no, he says, but man, did your attitude sure act mm -hmm. like it, you know? Yeah. And because the stuff that we did, they'll forgive, mm -hmm. but, but they'll they never forget. They never forget, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, uh, but, but, but man, you're doing the right thing with your kids. Yeah, we, talk so, to them about it. Yep. So I talked to him. I'm very transparent because unfortunately when I was growing up, some of my like family tree issues weren't brought to me. Um, my son, I, I talk a lot about peer pressure. That's like a big thing from when I was younger. And what really got me into like using at an early age was like the fear of being accepted, not being accepted, um, all the stuff that comes with it. But now I'm, I tell him when he's out with his friends, if drugs or alcohol, like I got a drug test waiting on the counter for when yep. you come home and that's your out. So if your friends offer you something that you don't want to do, just say my father's a psychopath. I have a drug <laughs> test that he's going to make me take. And all his friends kind of look at me like, you know, I'm the, the the crazy. I live in like a very nice town that, that you know, I probably shouldn't be living in. <laughs> with, uh, you know, my way that I came up. But, um, you know, I didn't really have an out. And that's something that I've learned through like education, talking to kids at school, learning different tactics from people, you know a text message. Hey dad, I'm in trouble. Here's the address. No questions asked. I'll pick you up. And even talking to him, like if he chooses to do drugs or drink or whatever the case may be, I hope that he's comfortable enough to talk to me about it sure. and know that I will love him no matter what. And that, that I would rather him call me if he's in danger than think he has to hide it from me. And then, you know, it snowballs into something worse than like, you know, a bad decision or a bad night getting behind the wheel of a car or in a friend's car or, or whatever. Um, I just really try to try to focus on communication in that aspect and then letting them know, like, you know, I'm an addict. You're, you're more likely if you start trying things to fall down that same path. And I threw away uh, sports. I threw away college. I threw away a lot of like golden opportunities, a lot of friends. Uh, he's known a lot of friends of mine that have passed away that he used to call, you know, Uncle Dougie, Uncle Sparky that have now passed, whether it was from the drugs or lifestyle. So he has like a, a very harsh dose of reality. Um, so I think, you know, hopefully I've done a good enough job that when he's faced, you know, he makes the right decision, whatever decision that might be. Well, at the end of the day, that's all we can do that's as parents, do. right? As Flint likes mm -hmm. to say, but Flint, Flint gets faced with this a lot where parents go, oh, my kid tells me everything. They would oh, never lie. <laughs> right. Oh, right. Right. My daughter lies to me about everything. She's nine. <laughs> and did you brush your teeth? Yeah. No, no, you didn't. No, right. Toothbrush isn't even wet. Yeah. <laughs> didn't even move from last night. What are you talking about, baby? Uh, yeah, I've gotten the, did you wash your hair? Of course they did that. Yeah. Over here. Yeah. Ain't no way. Yeah, exactly. They don't eat. Their first response is to lie. Like, they don't, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, Self-preservation, right? Yeah. We, we'll do more as a human to uh, not lose five dollars than to earn five dollars. Right? Mm -hmm. you know? No, so exactly. Save right. our ass despite our face. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, Matt, if there's any other insight that you kind of want to lend that maybe we didn't touch on and tell people how they can get a hold of you. Yeah, I mean, uh, if anybody wants to follow me, um, you can look look me up on Facebook, Matt Gannon, the poet. Um, Instagram and Twitter handle is at Matt Ganem, G-A-N-E-M underscore poet, um, aftermath addiction treatment center. Um, you know, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, you can see us holding up trophies of wiffle ball tournaments and <laughs> well, we got kickball and a three on three basketball coming up. So hopefully we can pull out another, another win in one of those. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, social media, I do you know, podcasts like this, I got a bunch of stuff on YouTube, some really old stuff, interviews, talks. Uh, I got, got a lot of material somewhere out there on the web. You know, if you look up my name, I'm sure you'll be able to find something. So, yeah. and the book, I know the book's yeah, out I'll, there. Yep. The shadow of an attic, a collection of poetry. I got put that out in 2012. So still got some copies floating around. Yeah. And some of it you did what was published before your sobriety, right? Some of the work. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got published when I was younger. Um, when I was writing, um, that book is from when I, when I got clean, uh, after okay. I got clean and it's actually a very condensed, like three months span of writing. Um, oh, okay. and I've had like, I had like another book put together and, and I had self published, um, the shadow of an addict and I had sold, 
almost 4,000 copies out of my car at this point and mailing them and, and meeting people and where I'm at with everything else that I do, it was really difficult to try to put a second one together and publishing companies. When you tell them you do poetry, they kind of laugh at you. So yeah. like, oh, this isn't going to make any money. Like, all right, buddy, I'll find another way. So yeah, I put a lot of my material out there just to, you know, if people relate to it, you know, hopefully, you know, it inspires them to, 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 make some decisions or support on their path, you know, yeah, keep them coming. Cause I stumble upon them uh, on mm -hmm. happenstance. Sometimes it seems a perfect mm -hmm. time to sit and read it. So yeah, yeah, definitely keep them coming. Mr. Anderson, Matt, thank you so much for joining yes. us. You're, you're, you're doing good work. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I'd like to be in touch with you. Maybe we could, uh, you know, do a couple things together in the future. I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I like what you're doing, man. I'm proud of you. You got some good time under your belt and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, just keep it up, man. Keep it up. Yeah, we thanks. need good treatment people out there and you're one yeah. of them. Thank you. I keep trying my best and thank you guys for having me on here. It's an honor. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. This podcast contains the views and opinions of hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page.